The scripture reading is Luke 19, 11 through 28. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then returned. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know that they had gained by doing business, what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to them, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to them, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Katie. What we've been doing all fall is um, we've been trying to wrap our heads around this concept that you see in the Bible called the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom? What, what does the Bible mean when it uses this language? And uh, we've been doing this all fall, and this is our last one of these to look at, uh, which is fitting since today, as has been mentioned earlier, is uh, Christ the King Sunday. But uh, for this last one that we are uh, looking at today... Um, I wanted us to think about the fact that uh, the kingdom is, is coming. It's here. It's already here. But I also want to think about what does it mean for the kingdom to come in the future? We've been saying every single week, we've tried to give a, a little nutshell definition of what we mean by the kingdom. And our kind of in-house definition has been, well, the kingdom is the upside down, already not yet surprisingly successful revolution of God making all things new. Well, what does the not yet mean? Well, the Bible says one day, someday, at a time we don't know, uh, our great king, Jesus, will return. I mean, we, we say this every single week at uh, a Redeemer. Somebody stands over here and says, Christ is risen, Christ will, or Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Uh, but he will come again to do what? And... Uh, whether or not you knew it, we all answered that question earlier in our service. When we read from the Apostles' Creed together, which may be the oldest summary of the, of the Christian faith, kind of like, let's take the, what, what do Christians believe? Let's boil it into just a couple of paragraphs. It dates back to the second century. And we said all together, 
that Jesus uh, shall come again, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. He will come to judge. He will come uh, to do more than that, but he will not come to do less than that, which is a way of saying he will come to settle accounts. He will come to make things right. He will come to determine who will have everlasting life and who won't. And this is a topic that uh, none of us really likes. It's uncomfortable. It's confusing. Judgment, hell, God's punishment, wrath. What what do we do with this? If we're going to take the Bible seriously, what do we do with this? A lot of modern Christians have said, well, this is uncomfortable, so let's avoid it. Let's pretend this topic isn't there. Let's, let's relate to this kind of like that weird uncle that uh, shows up, you know, every year at Thanksgiving. But throughout the year, we don't really think about, talk about, address. But there he is. Okay, once a year, every so often. Let's avoid it. Let's pretend this is not really a thing. Or a lot of modern Christians have also just decided to deny it. To say, well, that feels primitive, that feels archaic, uh, we're going to choose to believe in a God of love now. That sounds like a God, of, uh, a God that's angry, a God of wrath. We, we're not into that anymore. We're going we're gonna to update things around here. We believe in a God of love. And I think if you're going to take the Bible seriously, both of those aren't great options. Both of those are really just us trying to selectively edit and get rid of things that make us uncomfortable. So let's not do that this morning. Let's um, lean in to what is uncomfortable and confusing and hard and try to make sense of it. What, what do we do with the coming judgment of Jesus? Uh, I want to highlight three ideas from this passage. I want, us to, I want us to see the necessity of judgment, the fairness of judgment, and the surprise of judgment. The necessity of it, the fairness of it, and the surprise of it. So let's talk about the first one first, the, uh, the necessity of judgment. If you, go, if you go to the story, I mean, this passage is a story that Jesus is making up. He's just telling a parable to address some misconceptions that people had about the kingdom. You see in verse 11, they thought the kingdom was going to come immediately. So he tells this story to correct their thinking. The story goes like this. There was this nobleman, nobleman, however you say it, that represents Jesus himself. And it says that uh, he's going to leave. He's going to go to a faraway country to receive a kingdom, meaning so that he could be granted the authority to rule and to reign. But you see in verse 14, there's a, the, you know, the, the people of this area, they don't like this idea. They don't want him to be their king. And so they send this delegation after him. They hate him to try to stop this from happening. More on that group in a second. But in verse 13, before Jesus, the nobleman, before the nobleman leaves, he gives his servants, he gathers 10 of his servants together, and he gives each of them a mina, which is an ancient form of currency that basically was the equivalent of about three months of wages. So you think about three months of a paycheck, that's a sizable chunk of money. And he gives it to these servants, not as a Christmas bonus to just do whatever they want with it. He, he gives it to them so that they would steward it on his behalf, so that they would, they would carry on the family business. And so he gives them these things, and then he leaves, and then you see in verse 15, there's some time that has passed, and he returns, which is, this, is, this represents Jesus' return, the return of the king, his second 
coming. And what does he say in verse 15? It says, well, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. In other words, on his, upon his arrival, he's going to settle up all of the accounts. This is a, uh, this is a day of reckoning. He is, uh, he's going to follow up with each of these servants to see what they have chosen to do with the resources that he has graciously given to them. And the reason why he, do, he does this uh, is because he's good. He, he's a good king. If he just gave resources to people and it's like, do whatever you want, I don't really care, not only would that be financially dumb, but it would also prove that he's, he would, he'd be a terrible king. I mean, you think about parenting. If a parent looks at their kid and says, hey, this is going to be a no rules kind of a house. Uh, if you want to have a bowl of Skittles for breakfast, that's awesome. If you want to um, stay home from school today and play Minecraft or Fortnite, uh, that, that's cool with us. I see some children liking this, where this is going. Um, if you, you, know, you beat up your next door neighbor because they didn't share their cookie with you, we are cool with that in this home. Um, you and I both know that's not parenting. That's called neglect. That's, that is, uh, you're enabling self-destructive behaviors. And, and God's not a terrible parent. And so he, he's, he's a good king, which means that he holds people accountable. He, he, he does not just let things slide. He, he, um, he will judge people. Now, you might hear this and think, still, this makes me feel uncomfortable. I, like, I just make, there's something about it I don't like. Okay, keep thinking it out. Um, think about it like this. You know, in the past few years here in Memphis, there have been some high-profile, notorious murders that have taken place, just horrific, shocking acts of violence that has made national news. And um, for some of these cases, um, uh, the men that are alleged to be responsible for them are arrested, they're in in jail, they're awaiting for their trial. But let's suppose that their trial came, and there they are in the courtroom, and the judge says, you know, I'm feeling, um, feeling generous today, so I'm just going to let what you did slide. I'm just going to let you, let you off the hook on this one. You're free to go. Can you imagine the outrage of the families of the victims? Can you imagine the protests that would be taking place in the streets? Can you imagine, uh, I mean, we, we would run that judge out of town, which shows you deep down, you, we want justice. We want evil to be dealt with. We want people who have, who have done horrific things. We do, it, it's, it's, it cuts against the grain of our being to just let that slide. Somebody has to deal with that, which means deep down, we want a God of justice. We want there to be a God that makes things right in the world. In fact, this is, this is fascinating. Back in 2011, the creator of the show Breaking Bad, you remember Breaking Bad? His name is Vince Gilligan. Uh, the creator of this TV show, he did, a, he did an interview. And I remember reading it years ago. I've never been able to forget it. And I, and I tracked it down and I found it. Uh, I, I pasted um, a little bit of his uh, interview at the front of your bulletin. But here's what he said in this interview. It's fascinating. He reads this. I'll read it to you. It says this, quote, If there's a larger lesson to breaking bad, it's that actions have consequences. If religion is a reaction of man and nothing more, 
It seems to me that it represents a human desire for wrongdoers to be punished. I hate the idea of Idi Amin living in Saudi Arabia for the last 25 years of his life. That galls me to no end. I feel some sort of need for biblical atonement or justice or something. I like to believe there is some comeuppance, that karma kicks in at some point, even if it takes years or decades to happen. And then here's the the line. He says, I want to believe there's a heaven, but I can't not believe there's a hell. Now, that is a fascinating quote, because here's somebody from what I can tell is not a Christian. It doesn't seem like he's religious. But he's saying, when I look at the evil in the world... When I look at the wrongdoing and the, the, the chaos of the world, I can't not believe that there's something called hell or there's judgment, that there's justice that's done. I have a harder time believing in the concept of heaven than I do in the reality of hell. It's fascinating. So you, you may be hearing all this. You may think, okay, I can get down with that maybe at a philosophical level, the, the necessity of judgment. But still, when you think about God punishing people or God sending people to hell or God, I mean, even this language in verse uh, 27, this language of slaughtering, I mean, that seems sadistic. That's, you, you can hear that and say, okay, I don't support that. I don't like that. What do we do with that? Well, let's go a step deeper, and I want us to think about the, the fairness of judgment, the fairness of it. If you go back to the story, here's this king, and he's settling up accounts, and he goes to this first uh, servant in verse 16. This guy took one mina, and he made 10 more with it. And the king celebrates his faithfulness. In other words, he says, okay, you took this gift that was entrusted to you, and you worked it to benefit me and to benefit the kingdom, and he celebrates that. Well done. And then look at the response. Look what he does. It says, this is so over the top. He puts this servant in charge of 10 cities, 10, like that's pretty excessive. That is not a proportional reward. That is over-the-top abundance. That, that's, like a, um, that's like taking a sophomore in college that just passed their econ final and the professor saying, hey, you did so great passing that exam that I have worked some of my connections and you are now going to be the next owner of the Memphis Grizzlies. I mean, you hear that and you think, that, 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 is, that doesn't make sense. That's so disproportionate to what was earned. It's, it's over-the-top generous. And then the same thing happens with, uh, with verse 19. There's the second servant. He does the, does the same deal. He gets five. But the third servant is where the record scratches. Because you find out in verse 20, he didn't do anything with his mina. He just took his money and hid it and let it sit there. And you say, okay, why? He tells you in verse 21. He says, here's why I did it. I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He thinks that this king is severe. The Greek word there means strict, means harsh, In other words, here's this guy, and he's looking at this king, and he says, hey, I know that you are this no-nonsense, cutthroat, greedy business mogul, and if I took some of your money and I messed it up, let's say I invested in something and the investment kind of messed up and I lost some of your money, well, I just know you would have put me in a body bag, which is fascinating because here's somebody 
who um, you, you learn two things about this servant. On the one hand, you learn that he's motivated by self-protection. He's not making decisions to benefit the king, to benefit the kingdom, to benefit any, anybody else. He's, making, he's saving his own skin. And what you learn is what he thinks about the king. This guy is a monster. He is demanding. He is a tyrant. This guy cannot be trusted. Jesus puts these details in the story to show you that that response is completely delusional. Because look at how generous this king has been. He took minus three months of wages and just generously gave it to people to steward on their own. He didn't have to do that. And then he's rewarding them with this over-the-top, extravagant gifts. He's like taking night managers at cookout and making them regional governors over multiple cities, 10 different cities. It's, it's insane. So to, to look at this king and say, you are harsh, you are, you are miserly, you are strict, it, it, does, it, it's, it doesn't make sense. It's, it reminds me of a story when our son Reed was six years old. Uh, I got permission from him to share this story, by the way. When he was six years old, um, my wife Catherine was putting him to bed one night and said, hey, buddy, you got to put your books away. Because what Reed would do is he would just sit up in his bed and just flip through books for hours and hours and not sleep. And so she's like, but you got to go to sleep. you got to take these books away. And here's what he said. Here's the literal quote from six-year-old Reed. Mom, you never give me anything good. <laughs> it does not get more dramatic than that. You never give me anything good. And I wanted to say this to him, and I didn't, so I'll say it now. But no, I, what I wanted to say then was, buddy, for six straight years, we've given you nothing but food and water and shelter and clothing and ice cream and vacations and education and support and love. And we have not taken a day off yet. And, uh, but, to, you know, because you hear, I've never received not one thing good from you. It's, you, know, I mean, you get it. I feel for the little dude. In that moment, that's what he felt. It was genuine. But that's what this servant is experiencing right now. He is looking at this insanely generous king and saying, you have never given me anything good. You are harsh. You are severe. And so the king says, okay, look, we can have it your way. In verse 22, he says, I will condemn you with your own words. That's how fair the king is. He does not say, I'm going to condemn you with my words. I'm not going to impose some foreign standard on top of you that make you live up to it. I'm just, let's just use your words. And he gets condemned, which is another way of saying, if that's how you want to relate to me, if that's how you want to see me, then that's how you'll experience me. The irony of this passage is the only person that God is severe with is the person that expected him to be severe. God's saying, look, if you don't want any part of my goodness, if you are committed to seeing me as this harsh monster, 
Okay, we, we can play ball like that. We can have it on your terms. In fact, this is the same rationale behind the, kind of that shocking verse in verse 27. He says, as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before, them, before me. These were the people back in verse 14, if you remember, who were described as hating him. These were people who said, we so hate you, we are actively opposing your kingdom. If you hate somebody to that degree, where you have so demonized them in your heart, where they are just irredeemable in your mind, uh, this, is, this is a way of, of Jesus saying, okay, if that's how you want to relate to me, I am, I'm this irredeemable, power-hungry ogre, then I'll let you experience the full weight of that, if that's how you want to relate to me. The fairness of judgment is that God gives people what they want. Now, when people hear the idea of judgment in, in, in hell, people get offended and confused, and I understand why, because it's offensive and it's confusing. But I think one of the reasons why it's such a hard concept is because people make an assumption about it that is false. The assumption is heaven is this amazing place. It's like this theme park where everybody wants to go to, and it's fun, and it's exciting, and it's glorious, it's wonderful. But God has this really strict entrance policy, and if you don't know the secret password, or if you don't jump through all the hoops, if you don't follow all of his rules, not only do you not get into the theme park, he sends you to this terrible prison called hell. And the people there are miserable, and they hate it, and they're just they're banging their fists against a locked door saying, let me out, let me out, I want to go there. And God's just laughing in their face as he throws away the key. That's the assumption people have, but that assumption is false. Because what makes heaven heaven is the fact that God is there. That's why it's heaven, is because you get to be with God. What makes hell hell is that you are separated from God, uh, estranged from God, away from God. So if you think about this, if you don't want to be with God now, why do you think that you would want to be with him for eternity? If you say, okay, God doesn't matter to me, I don't really care about him, or I, I, deep down I really do think that he's a tyrant and a monster, then, then uh, God's not going to force you to hang out with him for eternity. He's not going to demand that you, that you play ball with him, in other words. He'll give you what you want. Nobody has put this more um, uh, artistically and insightfully than C.S. Lewis did in his book, uh, The Great Divorce. It's a, it's a small little, it's a fictional book, it's a great little read, but it's a story about a group of people who, who got what they want. They're in hell, and uh, they're away from God, they don't want anything to do with God, but they, the, it's, it's a weird story, but they get on a bus, and they take a field trip to the outskirts of heaven, and uh, when they get to the outskirts of heaven, the people in heaven are urging them to come in, come on into heaven and, and enjoy this place with us, and they think, okay, if I if I go in there, if I orient my life around God, if I orient my life around other people, I will be miserable. My life will be less happy. And so they don't go. And the point of the book is to show it's not that God is refusing them, but that they are refusing him. He writes this in, this, in that book. I, I put it in, the, in your bulletin as well. But he writes, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All who are in hell, choose it. 
which is what Lewis is saying is, is God is fair and kind enough to give people what they want in the end. If you want to be separated from him now, then you'll be separated from him. You'll get what you want. You can't argue that that's not fair, that that's uh, not just. Uh, and it's not the, it's not the case of, of God saying, well, if you don't want me, I don't want you. It's God saying, well, if you don't want me, I'll give you what you want. Verse 22, I'll condemn you with your own words. Now, I know all of this is sobering and heavy and feels like a lot, especially after Thanksgiving when you're like, I thought this was like fun and we're like with family and, and stuff. So this is, this is a lot, I know. But there is good news in this passage. And I want to show you one last aspect of this idea of judgment. I want you to see the surprise of it, the surprise of it. If you look at how the story is framed, in verse 11, Jesus tells this parable because he's getting close to Jerusalem. And then after he finishes telling his story in verse 28, it says that he actually goes into Jerusalem. Why is he going into Jerusalem? Well, if you rewind one chapter before this, in Luke chapter 18, verse 31, he tells you. I'll just read it for you. It says this. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. In other words, he's saying, I'm going into Jerusalem not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. I'm going into Jerusalem not to slaughter my enemies, but to willingly let my enemies slaughter me. Here you have a king that has such astounding love for his people that he is willing to give his very life for the very people who hate him, for the people who deny him, for the people who want nothing to do with him. As he is dying on the cross at their hands, he's praying for their forgiveness. He cries out, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And as he is experiencing the, the physical agony of the cross, you, you know it's not just physical what he's experiencing. What he's experiencing is also spiritual. It's cosmic. What he is enduring on the cross is the full weight of God's justice for all the wrongdoings and crimes and sin and atrocities of the world and of his people. They are being dumped directly onto Jesus. Jesus is being totally separated from God. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing cosmic rejection, cosmic separation from God. In other words, on the cross, Jesus is experiencing the essence of hell. Why is he going through hell on the cross? So that you and I wouldn't have to. He's being separated from God so that you and I would never have to be. One of the most glorious verses in the whole Bible, I think, is Romans chapter 8, verse 1. It says this, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? That means when you look at what Jesus has done and you, and you receive that as your own and you rest your very life upon it, the Bible looks at you and says, Judgment day has already happened for you. This future judgment that is coming has already been applied to Jesus. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, that Jesus delivers us from the coming wrath, which means, therefore, there is now, currently, present tense, 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I know it is, it, is, it is hard for us to wrestle with the belief in judgment and hell, and rightly so. It is heavy, sobering stuff. Here is the surprise of judgment, though. The surprising beauty of judgment is this, is that hell is the way that you know how much God loves you. Because hell is the demonstration of how much God was willing to go through in order to redeem you in order to love you. If you think about it like this, you say, okay, I, I don't like this idea of God uh, punishing sin and, and wrath and justice having to be satisfied. I, I don't think the cross is necessary. I think God just loves everybody and accepts everybody, and that's it. And I get why that's attractive. It sounds way, uh, way nicer on the surface, but yet... It, it, if you think it through, I think that you'll see that deep down, uh, that is a God that is infinitely less loving than the God of the Bible. Because what did it cost your God to love you? You say, well, nothing. He just loves everybody. What did it cost the God of the Bible to love you? It cost him everything. Because he is good and because he is just and because he cannot let things just slide, he gave up all of his power, and he gave up all of his glory, and he became weak, and he became vulnerable, and he died an excruciating death in your place, which means he loved you and me at infinite cost to himself. If you have a, let's say that you have contracted a life-threatening illness, and you're in the hospital, and you're dying, and the only treatment that's available is this super rare crazy, expensive drug that they have just made, and it's, it's just come out on the market, and it's only available in Germany. And you have two friends that come and visit you in the hospital one day, and friend A comes in and says, I love you so much, and here's a get well soon card, and if you need anything, just text me. And then friend B comes in and says, I love you so much, and I have sold my home and I've sold all of my possessions and my clothing and my cars. I have, I have liquidated all of my assets. I have bankrupted myself, and I'm taking all of the funds to buy this medicine from Germany to have it shipped over to save your life. Which of these two friends do you think loves you more? Look at the cross, and you will see a God that was willing to liquidate all of his assets for you. You see a God that was willing to literally go to hell and back for you. And so the only application, the only invitation from this passage is to run to him, to find your life in him, to uh, rest in the protective love that he has for people like you and me, people who... Uh, are liberated and are saved and freed simply if we come to him, not because of how good we are, not because of how moral we are, not because of how smart we are, but just the fact that we find our life in him. That's the invitation for you and for me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, these are heavy and sobering things to think about. I pray that you would uh, help us to not be afraid of these concepts, truths that are hard, truths that are confusing, 
truths that are offensive. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the surprising beauty of them as well. As we look at a world that feels so out of control, feels so beyond hope, feels so helpless, we take comfort in the fact of knowing that we have a God that is strong, a God that is coming, a God that will not just let cancer and death and violence and genocide and trafficking Uh, exist in his good world any longer, that there is an expiration date on that stuff, and one day you will come to judge the living and the dead, and you will make all things right, and you will settle all accounts, and you will invert all evil, and all things will be made new. And that is our hope, and that is our comfort. I pray that you would help us to see the wonder and the depth and the uh, infinitude of your love for people like us who don't deserve it. And I pray that we would, as a result, be so transformed that we would become more tender, more softened, more brokenhearted over the evil in the world and might become agents of redemption in it. All of this is only possible because of Jesus, and it's in Jesus and by Jesus we pray these things. Amen.